Hey, welcome to the Chess Experience. On this show, it's all about helping adult improvers. I want to make learning chess easier for you to navigate, and I also want you to have a more fun experience along the way. I'm your host, Daniel Lona, a fellow chess amateur. Let's get to it. This show is sponsored by Chess.com, the world's largest chess community. One of Chess.com's most popular features is called Game Review. This feature weaves together a lot of benefits in one post-game analysis. For example, you can see how accurately you played, whether you made any moves that were deemed brilliant or great, which makes me feel a lot better about my chess when I get one of those. And Game Review also offers a virtual coach that gives insights on every move. It'll also show you alternate lines that would have been better for you to help you understand how you can improve your game. So go on chess.com, play a game, and try out the game review. Hey, welcome to this week's episode. I just want to mention again, like I did last week, that this Thursday, December 1st, my online membership, Chess Improver Monthly, will feature a group coaching lesson from the awesome coach and national master, Ian Harris. You'll hear me say this over and over, coaching is gold if you want to improve your chess, and this particular opportunity is a chance for you to submit one of your games for review or watch others get their games reviewed. You can even just ask a general improvement question if you have one, and you don't have to attend live to get all that great help because you can submit your question and the replay video will be available to you in the membership. And again, several months ago, I had the chance to be on Ian's Twitch stream with his co-host and fellow adult improver, Omar Mills. Ian reviewed one of my games, and he's really insightful and has a very kind, patient approach to his coaching. So again, that'll be live this Thursday, December 1st at 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. But again, you don't have to even be there live. This will be a chance for you to get some coaching from National Master Ian to kick off that month and lots of other benefits for just $15 a month. Go click the link to join in the show notes or on the webpage for this episode. All right. I am super excited for today's guest, the first and only American woman to achieve the Grandmaster title, Irina Crush. In addition to earning the GM title, Irina is also an eight-time U.S. Women's Champion, and for several years now, she's coached scholastic players with her business, GM Chess, and she can be regularly seen commentating on Chess.com, offering her brilliant insights. In this interview, Irina shares her journey as the most talented female player in the United States and how she ultimately earned the GM title. Of course, we do discuss the 2022 U.S. Women's Championship that she participated in and unfortunately had a heartbreaking loss in the end. But from that discussion, Irina offers some great wisdom on how to bounce back after a rough tournament. And finally, in this interview, we discuss what she expects her chess future to look like. Here's my interview with Irina. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Hi, Irina. How are you? Hi, Daniel. I'm doing well. Thank you. That's great. So just one uh, small question I had for you, just uh, for fun and out of curiosity, because I know you recently finished competing in the uh, U.S. Women's, and we'll talk about that later in the interview. But what does your tournament schedule look like going forward? What's like your next big tournament that you have planned? Um, My next big tournament, uh, maybe the Karen's Cup. Uh, It's scheduled for February of next year. Um, I mean, I haven't gotten my invitation yet, but I, I did get like a save the date. Um, so if I get invited to that, I, I do plan to play. 
Um, also, the American Cup is probably going to be at the same time as it was this year in April. Um, so that would also be something I, I'll play in. And yeah, maybe nothing like nothing super major planned until then. I see. How long does preparation for one of those tournaments last for you? So let's say, you know, you confirm one of those. Is it just a couple of weeks beforehand? Or are you preparing months in advance? Yeah, well, you know, ideally you start early, I would say. It's always my intention. You know, <laughs> as soon as I know my opponents to start preparing, I would say probably doesn't work out exactly like that. Um, but if I can at least, you know, start a few weeks before, clear most of my schedule, that's like already quite good. Um, you know, like for the U.S. Championship this year, I basically, I guess I did one week of pretty intense preparation. I cleared my schedule of most things. Um, and, um, in my, in my kind of, in my life, that's already like a big, uh, big allocation of time. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure. And are you, do you have like a regular, like just, uh, I don't know if call it training schedule or just your own chess practice schedule that you do weekly already set up or is it, or is it, uh, just, you know, a little more, <laughs> uh, flexible? Yeah, it's definitely on the flexible side. Um, I mean, I guess for years now, I haven't really had uh, a schedule, you know, for my studying chess. I mean, I mean, I've been focusing on teaching, uh, running a business GM chess uh, for so long now, since like 2015. So it's really been years since I've like been able to to have a schedule for myself. But actually, since the U.S. championship, so in the last month, I've been, um, you know, dedicating more time you know, doing tactics on chess.com, playing games against the computer. And as you know, as, and as usual, you know, going over the recent games of tournaments and, um, you know, trying to do some kind of training exercises for myself, um, you know, because the U.S. championship, it didn't end very well. So it uh, definitely motivated me to try to address, you know, some of the, um, the issues that were keeping me from doing better. Yeah, that makes sense. And that was what I was going to ask you as you were talking about that. I was wondering if that if that event inspired, you know, your recent increase. But uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely. You know, every time you have an unsuccessful event, you know, uh, you are more motivated, I think, to, to do some work to make things better. So um, that's basically I mean, it's not like I've increased my workload by a ton, but still like it's regular, which is something I wasn't doing before. And you know, I think every little bit helps, right? If you can do something every single day, um, obviously, it all adds up in the end. Right? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, like I said, we'll dive more into discussing uh, some elements of that tournament later. But that's that's kind of a nice uh, preview and a window into that to start. But yeah, let's let's move on to discussing your own chess background and how it all began and, and some parts as, as it unfolded. So at age five, your father taught you to play chess. My understanding is while you were moving from uh, Ukraine to the United States, which is really cool. First of all, how important was chess to your parents and how important was it that you learned and, and, and be good at it? Well, chess was definitely my dad's thing. My mom uh, wasn't and isn't a chess player, you know, but she supported. She supported the endeavor. Um, but chess was my dad's passion. Um, he still plays online and I still catch him, you know, doing tactics on chess.com, things like that. And he's <laughs> always been in touch with chess, um, you know, besides just even 
um, you know, the, the time spent accompanying me to tournaments and watching me play, like he's interested in it for himself. Um, it was something that he did when he was younger. He played uh, chess for his college team in the Soviet Union and in, uh, in Odessa. And so he, yeah, he taught me to play and passed on that, uh, that interest in chess to me. Hmm. And do you remember either as a kid or teenager, at, at what point you wanted to strive to, I don't know, maybe say be at an elite level in women's chess and have big goals like going for the GM title? Or do you remember around what time that came into focus for you? Yeah, I mean, I would say, okay, probably around the age of like 12 to 14. Um, so when I was 12, I became a master and I had this nice result at the US Open in Alexandria, Virginia, where I won the under 2200 section. And I think that's that's actually where I made the master title. So and I won some nice cash prize. And it was it was a nice success, you know, in a big tournament. Um, and when I was 13, uh, I guess I mean, I was already playing in the US Women's Championships. Um, but I started to study chess more. Yeah, definitely. When I was 13, um, did a lot more independent study. And then uh, that set me up to have this breakthrough year in 98 uh, when I, you know, kind of really arrived on the U.S. chess scene and represented the U.S. at the Chess Olympiad for the first time, won my first U.S. Women's Championship, won my first medal in a World Junior Championship. Um, so everything kind of came together in 98. So I'm sure by 98, like I had uh, very ambitious <laughs> goals, like, uh, you know, become, at least becoming a GM. That was, I think that was probably the least of my goals. Yeah. I see. And do you remember like how much of that was from yourself, like your own internal desire to just go for those things, regardless of anyone encouraging you to do that compared to maybe just how much of it came from your own father's encouragement and, you know, um, how much of it was you versus <laughs> other external factors? Yeah, I think it was it was mostly me. Uh, I mean, certainly I had support from my parents and my father. Um, but I think that was kind of natural when you spend a lot of time on something and and you enjoy it and then you see yourself doing well that um, that you're going to like have some goals like that. I think it was a pretty you know crucial time for me, I, this 1997-98 time period where you know, really for the first time in my life, like I was studying chess a lot more on my own. Like I remember when I was a kid, my coach would, my coach, uh, Mikhail from, uh, Mikhail Trostman from the Ukraine. He was a well-regarded chess trainer there. He came here already kind of in his, I would say, you know, the twilight years of his career, right? Like somewhere in his sixties. And, um, and he would leave me these printouts, right? Because we didn't have chess base then. Uh, we didn't have computers to work with, just books and, and he would make photocopies for me from like chess informants and or chess encyclopedias and like um, bring it to me like on the Sicilian defense. And I would have all these printouts at home that I'm pretty sure I never really looked at. Right. Until that time period <laughs> when I was like 13 um, and I started to look at it. And I was starting to play people who were like, you know, 2400 or so at the Marshall Chess Club. And against people like that, you needed some opening knowledge. Right. And then when I when I was studying these. Um, these printouts and I was able to apply it in my games. And I saw like, wow, like if I know the opening, I can just do well against these players. Cause I remember there was a time when like those 2400s, they were very, they were tough for me. Like I could feel like it was hard to play against them. Right. So, but it was that kind of independent work 
where I actually, you know, put things that played things out on the board, learned, um, learned some new things about the openings. And I was doing that on my own kind of, and seeing how it paid off that, um, you know, once I had that more serious approach, then like it was natural to have uh, some kind of ambitious goals. Yeah, that makes sense. Something that as you're describing this, it kind of caught my ear. So is it the case that you didn't spend much time on openings until that point in your chess career? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, um, basically, what I actually what I remember learning uh, in about chess as a kid is uh, a lot of tactics. Definitely, that was a part of my uh, upbringing. I would have the Encyclopedia of Chess Combinations, this big orange book that I went through, you know, as as a kid, um, and all all the different, you know. Uh, famous books of the time, like there was this red book, I think it was by Lou Hayes, um, famous, famous uh, middle, you know, middle game combinations and things like that. So I would spend my time with that and um, openings, probably, you know, some minimal amounts, right? And really, it was like that time period before, you know, 97, 98, when I was trying to get, you know, ready to play these 2400 players that, um, that I did more work on the openings. And of course, since then, like after that, in my teenage years, I definitely remember, you know, sitting down with games collections of the classical players, you know, Botvinnik and Capablanca, like Alekhine, like all of them. And and then I would also spend time on that. I see. And was there a chess player that served as a role model for you that for what you wanted to achieve at that point? Um, I don't think so. It's interesting to say, right, because Judith Polgar was. <laughs> at the top of her game then. And I don't know, I, I guess I, I probably did my own like parallel thing. Like, uh, you know, it's funny because yeah, like she was there and she was playing against all the top guys, but I don't remember it having like a big, you know, impact on me. Like I was just doing my thing, you know? I see. So you, you didn't really, time, uh, yeah, you know, at that time, like the media, I mean, it wasn't like, like the, the worlds were more separated, right? Like we didn't have this constant access to the top players where we could watch them on video. I mean, you know, like once uh, every couple of months, you know, you would see her in a magazine or something, right? Like, um, and that was it. So we didn't have that kind of information where like, I don't know that she's constantly um, in front of you. Like you're sitting at home and you're like, just trying to study some sort of um, uh, out, you know, that your coach made you and cut out nicely for you from like the chess, uh, chess encyclopedia. And like that, that's already occupying your time, you know? Yeah. Oh, that's a great point. That's an interesting insight that, you know, that nowadays it's just, it could be easier to have someone to model yourself after because you can see them more as a person on video and, and you know, maybe even interact with them a bit potentially, uh, uh, in some ways, we grew up in uh, pretty much the same around the same time. So I understand that, you know, there wasn't that uh, that kind of access or invisibility. Yeah, exactly. Like if you think about it, like when did I even ever see Judith Polgar on, you know, like in video or live for the first time? I mean, I certainly not as a kid. Right. Like we didn't have Internet until late 90s. So like the time period that I'm talking about, you know, 10, 12, 13, 14, um, you know, just probably around 14 is when I started or thir maybe uh, maybe 13, 14, yeah, it's the Internet Chess Club, you start playing. But again, that's, you know, that's playing games online. It's not necessarily, um, it's not necessarily seeing, you know, the top players in such an accessible way as it's possible these days. Like these days, literally every day I turn on, 
um, chess.com or chess24. I'm watching the commentary of the top events. You see the interviews with the players. Um, it's, it's like a much better, a you know, much better environment to really get to know the players, you know, find the ones that you like the most, right. And root right. for them than it was at the, in, in the end of the nineties. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. They can be, um, person like specific personalities now to you whereas before maybe they were just their games i don't know exactly just their games you know that was it and like and i don't even i don't remember that you know there being a collection of you know judah polgar's games at that time right like right now i think it's actually a fairly recent thing maybe in the last five ten years she's published her um her series of books about her games but that just wasn't available back then so you had to make yeah. do with the old games, you know, Capablanca <laughs> and Botvinnik and Bronstein. Right. So, yeah, you mentioned at age 12, you earned the uh, National Master title. And at 16, you earned the IM title. And uh, I was reading about this period, and I, I couldn't quite get the uh, exact date. So maybe you could help me here. But uh, I believe somewhere in that time frame, because of your success in your chess career, your parents had you take half of your school classes at home mm -hmm. um, to, to help you spend more time on chess. Can you talk about that time period? And did that decision make things easier for you or to put more pressure to, to perform? Yeah. So I think that happened around the time I was in middle school. Um, my you know elementary school uh, attendance was quite normal except for a few weeks off, you know, here and there to go to the world youth championships. But in middle school, yeah, it just became obvious that you needed to spend more time on chess than what a typical school day allowed. And obviously it wasn't like super productive um, spending all that time in class, right? Like you could certainly uh, get an education to, you know, spending less time in school. So so my dad at that point did uh, speak to, I guess, the school principals. So I know by the time I entered high school, ninth grade, like like that had already been in place. So I, I would assume it was probably from around like seventh grade, something like that. Um, and yeah, so I don't remember exactly how it was, except that I just had more flexibility to stay home. I mean, I still had to fill, you know, take tests, fulfill all my requirements. And, you know, but doing independent study for school was not that difficult or different from doing independent study in chess right right so you know having that you know having that experience with chess um it just it was very natural to um to study for on my own for things or for school and so yeah that wasn't so much of a problem um i think it was really good for my chess i think those are pretty uh, critical years actually your teenage years and if you do have ambitions to be a chess player um, you want to make the most of that. And I read in an interview uh, that Daniel Dubov did some years back where he talked about the difference between him and Carlson was that, you know, Carlson spent those critical years, you know, playing chess and absorbing as much as he could. And, um, and Dubov didn't. And now that Dubov has to work, you know, has to make up for it now, but you can just like never quite make up for those, uh, for those, uh, critical formative years, right? And I think that made that made a lot of sense to me. Actually, I knew exactly what he was talking about, um, and I felt like, yeah, it was quite quite important that I, for my middle school years, like I was able to devote more time to chess and spend my high school years, you know, going to tournaments. Um, so I, d I definitely didn't have like a normal high school experience. Um, 
you know, which I can only be happy about, right? Because, you know, that, that helped accelerate my, my chess progress. And uh, does it, was it more stressful for me? I, I don't think so. I don't think it was stressful at all. I think just in general, um, doing things on my own and studying on my own, like it was all quite, uh, quite natural for me. And my parents did give me support, like when there were some subjects that I wasn't as good in, like science and math. And, um, and so I would get tutoring, you know, so like if I had to prepare for a test, like they would just get me a teacher. Um, and actually, um, those, yeah, those were the only two subjects where I needed like any help. But when, uh, when needed, you know, my parents uh, helped me with that. So this opportunity to do like half of your classes from home that lasted from middle school all the way through the end of high school. Yeah, I basically didn't like. I think my last, like my twelfth year of high school, like twelfth grade, I like maybe I had like one more class left to do to complete my graduation requirements. You know, um, so I basically didn't attend twelfth grade at all. Like in eleventh grade, maybe I. I had to appear in person for like a couple of classes a week. Um, but, you know, I was still getting all my requirements in. Right. So it wasn't like I was, uh, you know, failing my classes or not completing their requirements to graduate. Like um, like it was all it was all getting done. So, yeah, you talked about the importance of that for your chest for your chest development and anyone's chest development basically mm-hmm. is uh, kind of what it sounds like. Do you think you could have or would have earned the GM title if you didn't have all that extra time to focus on chess? You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's still possible I would have, but I do feel like the experience I got, you know, playing strong players from like an early age. And that's, you know, what I was doing from the time, like, yeah, I remember there was when I was like, probably around 15 years old. Yeah, 15. Like I would go to England for these norm tournaments and try to make GM norms there. Um, yeah, I would, I would. I mean, like at that time period, I kind of traveled all over the world. Like if you think about time period of like, you know, t- 99 to let's say 2002, when I started my freshman year of college, um, like I just off the top of my head, I, I don't know, I was probably in England, like, um, you know, I would say, I don't know, five times. Um, I went to the Faroe Islands for a tournament, played in St. Petersburg and like India, uh, China. I mean, yeah, so I, I, I definitely did, did quite a bit of traveling uh, in that time period. Yeah, that's fascinating that it had that that kind of impact. I mean, I guess I shouldn't be surprised, but it's really interesting to hear that. So yeah, there was something else that you said in an interview uh, in Jennifer Shahadi's book, uh, Chess Queens, that that really interested me. It mentions that after you finished high school, you took a year off before going to college to focus entirely on chess. And she quotes you as saying, uh, this is an exact quote, but you said that you eventually realized that you didn't want to spend all your time on chess. So that's really interesting. Can you can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, you know what's interesting about that is that I have no memory <laughs> of saying that and <laughs> you know, even when I hear it it's like, you know, I hear it as something where it's like I could have said it or or could have not said it. You know what I mean? Sometimes you hear something <laughs> and you clearly see yourself reflected in that. Like you know exactly um, you know, where you were coming from when you said something like that. When I hear this free uh, statement like, I don't have any immediate um, recognition of it, right? 
but mm. but nor 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 do I have a feeling like oh I couldn't have possibly ever said that right because I think I think I was overall on board with going to college I mean I did um, do my own applications and send them off you know um, <laughs> and you know had my parents fill out those financial aid forms I remember that and I think it was um, not something that I didn't uh, like an experience that I wouldn't have enjoyed right like I always enjoyed education and. To me, going to school was kind of, you know, learning about new things was kind of fun. Um, so uh, going to college, just like it wouldn't have been a problem for me. But at the same time, I think I always like really enjoy chess, right? If you ask me now, like, would I be happy to spend all my time on chess? I would say pretty much, yeah. Like if I could, um, I, I I would still be quite happy to do that. At least maybe not all of my time, but like most of my time or like a good portion of my time. Um so yeah, um, about that statement, I guess, um, you know, I was open to going to college and it's not like it made me stop playing chess. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And so, yeah, after that year, um, you enrolled and graduated from New York University with a degree in international relations, which is really cool. Uh, and we actually share that same degree. Uh, so that oh. uh, caught my eye. So are you are you still engaged in that subject in any kind of way? I know, obviously, your life has been chess. But yeah. you know, it was it was a major that that you um, got a degree in. And so just curious, like what if any role that still has for you now? I think it has just a role that it, uh, seemed like an interesting subject to me when I was in school. And it was basically the intersection of politics, economics, uh, you know, foreign language that we also had to study for that. Um, mm. So that just seemed like a nice mix of things that I was interested in all of them. And, and that's the way I feel about it now, you know, that all of those things are still interesting to me. In fact, I would say that um, in terms of what I like to spend my time reading about. And um, I'm still interested, you know, in what's going on, you know, in the world. I would follow <laughs> yeah, it, you yeah. know. I definitely try to, um, you know, I'm interested in, yeah, in, in the in the big, you know, geopolitic chessboard. Yeah, it's an interesting subject <laughs> for me, right? Yeah, like, right. I'm in, in a way that, like, you know, you're not going to get these views from, like, a newspaper if you open it up, right? But if you kind of look deeper into it, you know, like the newspaper, let's say it's not going to talk to you about like, okay, who blew up like Nord Stream 2, right? Who, and whose interest was that? <laughs> it's just not going to yeah. report on things like that. If it does, it's going to give you, you know, I don't know, not, not something very insightful, right? But there are, there's a lot of questions these days in like international politics that are very interesting like that, right? Um, so, I mean, like the kinds of things that I'm interested in, it's like, okay, I'm interested in is uh is the fed on board you know how what is their relationship with the other central banks around the world are they all on the same page where they have you know because okay there was a there was some kind of meeting where the representatives from the european central bank like christine lagarde they were talking about how it's in their i guess pur purview to yeah work on this climate change and this esg initiatives and all of that and like and powell just didn't seem that enthusiastic. And their reaction was like, they were very disappointed. Like, what's the meaning of that? What's the significance for our life, right? You see things like that I'm interested in. Um, so, you know, that that's my interest. It's not something that is like um, my career or anything, but I think just like as a, 
as a younger person, I was interested in how the world worked. I would say that, you know, 20 years later, those questions are still interesting to me. Oh, that's great. I, I like hearing that, you know, the interest still still lives on and, and uh, is with you. So that's very cool. Um, uh, so yeah, back to uh, chess. Yeah. Uh, you, <laughs> um, so uh, you're my third guest on the show so far who achieved their GM title uh, well into adulthood. And um, as this is a show for adult improvers, so I find this a fascinating subject. Um, you so you, as I mentioned earlier, you you earned your IM title. Well, I guess I didn't say the year, but in in two thousand one, and you earned your first of three GM norms shortly after that, is my understanding. Mm-hmm. I think at about age seventeen, if I'm not yep. mistaken. And but it wasn't until twelve years later, until in two thousand thirteen, that you earned the GM title. So this period from two thousand one to two thousand thirteen, you know, maybe it wasn't a constant effort. Uh, along the way, but what was the most challenging aspect of this decade plus journey in in getting that title for you? Ah, well, the most challenging aspect. I, you know, it's funny because I guess I don't even like necessarily see it like that, right? Mm, I guess okay. because chess for me, it, I mean, of course, I I wanted to become a GM, and I you know I'd wanted to become a GM for you know way way earlier than let's say even two thousand and one when I made my first norm. But I guess it wasn't like the kind of thing where it was some kind of all-consuming goal where that was the reason I was playing chess. And if I wasn't meeting that goal, I was like somehow very, um, very disappointed and thinking about quitting chess, right? So that wasn't my story. It was like, you know, I stayed in chess because I love chess. I mean, it was just what I did. Um, I, you know, I enjoyed the whole process. Uh, you know, going to the best tournaments and trying to challenge myself with the strongest players. So I guess I'd, I wouldn't even describe this like 12 year um, journey as like challenging, right? <laughs> I would just mm. describe it. It was like, it was, yes, it, it took a long time. Eventually it got done and it kind of got done probably, in, you know, in the same way that, w- you know, that reflected my overall approach was, you know, I just enjoyed being a chess player. And so eventually I became a GM, you know, that's how I would put it. Oh, that's great. I actually like that even more. That's uh, than like, you know, some like, you know, multi-year, you know, concerted focus to, to get the title. Like, it doesn't sound like it was like that at all. Like, it just kind of came through. Yeah, not exactly, right? Yeah. It's like, of course, I mean, of course I had my eye on this. Like, of course, you know, I tried to play strong tournaments where there, I'd be facing a lot of GMs and have a chance to make a norm. And, you know, um, it's not like it wasn't disappointing to me when I would fall half a point short, which I did on a couple of occasions. Like one of them was, I think it was 2003. So I was really close to getting my second norm um, at the Generation Cup tournament that Maurice Ashley organized um, at the Marshall Chess Club. And then I wound up, well, I wound up drawing my last game instead of winning like I needed to. And then later on, there was, I think it was the 2010 US Championship where I also needed to win my last round game against uh, Jesse Cry, uh, probably Hmm. another one of the GMs (laughs) you might have interviewed. Yeah, yeah, he was one of them. Yeah. <laughs> right. So I needed to win and I didn't. So that was another half point that I fell short. Um, so, I mean, of course, those things were disappointing. It's not like when I knew that I could make a norm that I didn't care about it or something. No, I tried. Uh, I tried very hard. Um, but at the same time, it wasn't like 
it was never in my mind like, okay, I got to become, you know, this or that in two, two years or however long, um, or that's a problem. Like, no, I just, um, I just, you know, enjoyed the whole process of being a chess player. Hmm. So you were just gradually, I guess, over time working on your yeah. game throughout those years, right? Yeah. And-, and, you know, well, those years were different, right? There were the years of like those 2001 to 2013, the, they encompassed, you know, four years of college, then, you know, okay, then there was this interim period where I just finished college, and I could kind of refocus on chess more. Um, Then, you know, I had the Samford Fellowship in those years as well, which actually, um, I'm sure gave me like the boost I needed to eventually uh, finish completing my norms. Um, So yeah, in those 12 years, there was kind of kind of a lot of, of things going on. Um, but you know, maybe, maybe that's also, uh, it's, 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 it's like, that's your journey. You can also look at it as like some kind of a, it's drawbacks in your approach, right? Like, of course, you know, maybe I should have been like more focused on, you know, on improving myself, getting those norms faster. Um, I mean, that's just a different approach, but I guess the way I did it, like, honestly, I'm, quite happy with the way my life has worked out, you know, quite happy with um, what the, you know, what I've been able to do in the game of chess and what chess has given me, you know, I feel really, really, uh, you know, thrilled about that. So, so I don't know if I needed to do too much differently, but, you know, of course it's possible always to achieve more. Sure. When you did finally get the the GM title, how did you feel about that? I mean, was it was it uh, like a huge thrill, or you know, it, it doesn't sound like it was something you were specifically focused on for, you know, like like we said with this all this, you know, like a concerted effort for a long period of time. It it sort of unfolded naturally for you. So, uh, how did it feel once you once you got the title? Oh, it was it was wonderful. I mean, I was extremely <laughs> happy. You know, I mean, I knew I'd I'd accomplished something something kind of big for, uh, you know, for myself, for women's chess in America, right, being the first uh, American woman to do it. Um, and I mean, how how motivating was it for me to become the first American woman? Um, it was it was nice. It was nice. I mean, <laughs> but yeah. I mean, the main the main thing was to do it, you know, the main thing was to do it. And I think, you know, being an IM for so long, and then at some point I was just getting very close, you know, my rating got in that like 2470, 2490, 2495 range. And, um, and basically, you know, once you're that close and I was doing work on, you know, a lot of work on my game in those years, like I mentioned, you know, the Sanford fellowship definitely provided me with the resource to do that. And it coincided uh, with the arrival of my coach, uh, Georgie Kachishvili from back to the U S. And so we started to work together again. So things kind of came together in those like that period from 2010 when I was working with Georgie and had the Samford, you know, um, that, that's, uh, that work culminated in my successful year in 2013, where it's funny because 2013 was a little bit like 1998, you know, a lot of like, you know, good things come in threes. That's what happened again. Like I won, uh, I got a gold medal at the World Women's World Team Championship, and that's where I got one of my norms. I won the U.S. Women's with some score of like eight out of nine. 
Um, and then I also made my last norm even over fulfilling it by like half a point in, in Baku, Baku Open, which was one of like the strongest opens in the world at that time. And yeah, so like very successful year for me. And that was also really coming after a period of like several years of work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's amazing. It's an incredible achievement. So I'm going to kind of skip past uh, <laughs> some years here. There's there's so much to talk about, uh, Irina, in your in your career. It's hard to it's hard to choose. But uh, obviously, um, you've won eight U.S. Women's Championships, and you know, there's probably an episode for each one <laughs> of stories. But uh, let's talk about the most recent one this year. Uh, I was rooting for you to win. And uh, I know you came extremely close to getting that that ninth uh, victory at this tournament uh, facing Jennifer Yu and Armageddon. Obviously, it can't be easy dealing with that outcome. Uh, but what are your thoughts on your overall performance in that tournament? Um, well, I think there there's good and bad. Um, I guess the good would be that I didn't lose any games. Um, I didn't really come particularly close to losing any games. There were maybe like there were a couple of shaky moments but you know that's like a couple out of 13 rounds um is not that much well yeah i would say two to three but still out of 13 rounds wasn't so much and um you know overall i think there were definitely good aspects to my play i mean i was able to get a lot of winning positions so i didn't really have any problem um building up those winning positions but but um my ability to convert them was quite poor. And, you know, I don't know. Uh, I mean, I partly attribute that to my own, you know, uh, chess weaknesses, you know, you can also always a little bit of, you know, bad luck, you can say a little bit of your opponent's <laughs> uh, good resistance, you know, but I mean, it was kind of a mix of all of those with primarily my own, I think, chess weaknesses, like coming to the forefront to, uh, to hurt me there. Um, so, you know, uh, yeah, it came down to that, you know, it was basically a tournament of missed opportunities. And um, I, you know, given the positions I had, I should have had a lot more points, and it really wouldn't have been close at the end. But, but, you know, yeah, I mean, from that point of view, I was underperforming, you know, on winning on winning these winning positions. And um, I was even half, you know, half a point behind Jennifer when I played her in the penultimate round. Um, I was pretty happy with with that game, with like the opening choice um, that my coach and I went with. And um, it's always nice to win, you know, must win games because oh, that builds your fighting uh, character as a chess player. You know, when you're in those situations and you absolutely got to win and you you're able to pull it out. I think it's always like a valuable experience to have. Um, but, you know, yeah, we wound up tied after 13 rounds and uh yeah i think the tie break overall it was mm, i mean you know it's hard to even explain <laughs> what happened there um i mean we like again I, I lost my first game kind of an up and down sharp game okay i did some stupid things there in the end when we had a few seconds left and then i had to win again and that second game wasn't going very well for me either but somehow i managed to win that one and so we got to the Armageddon and then, you know, this happened where she hangs her bishop. And um, of course, in some way, you understand that like when someone hangs a bishop and, you know, they even like, of course, they want to take the move back, but they can't. I mean, you understand you've won the game. Like I'm sure somewhere in my head, 
that was it. But I, I can't, I can't say that I just like relaxed or something or that I just stopped thinking. It was just, I don't know. It's like, sometimes you're, um, uh, you're just unable to explain how it all happened, how you were able to do all the like ridiculous things that you did. Right. Like, I feel like that's all I can really say about it. Um, there was the shock of like hanging my queen and then I was still completely winning. And, um, <laughs> then I made it harder. And so I, I didn't calculate properly. And then I was still completely winning later. And then I, you know, I was very sad because even then, like I had like this quite, quite nice thing that where I could just be, you know, completely winning, like it's a forest line. And, and I was trying to set up something similar. So I missed this one. And I mean, it was just like so many things that I did wrong in that game. And finally, just like not paying attention to the clock because there was no increment and, uh, you know, putting myself even in a position to lose on time. I mean, it was like, it was terrible. It was terrible all around. It was like such a disaster. Um, but I guess, I guess, uh, I guess I took that, you know, as a kind of a wake up call. Right. And, uh, if you, you know, if you can't calculate some forced way to win and four moves, um, you know, you need to, you need to work on that more. And that's why when I came back, I started, uh, working on those, on those, uh, issues more. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was from a spectator perspective, it was, it was, you know, really exciting to watch all those games. Although, you know, uh, for someone who's a fan of yours, it's, you know, uh, wanted you to, to see you pull it off. But, uh, I'm, I'm curious, like about the emotional side of that, uh, result. And, you know, after the last game, the Armageddon game, I think for, you know, every chess player has been there to some degree, not with those stakes, but that kind of feeling at a tournament and outcome in a game. How do you deal with that emotionally in the sense of just bouncing back? And I think it's easy to like, for example, get down on ourselves or, you know, be very harshly self-critical. How do you avoid getting into that? And like, what strategies do you have, if any, to to kind of look more positively to the future <laughs> as as you take your next steps, you know, in, in chess? Yeah, well, I mean, it was really hard at the time, right? So I can't say that I just played that game and, you know, walked off and went to have lunch or something as if nothing had happened. Like, it was pretty devastating. Um, I mean, just so just so disappointing, you know? And, and, it, and I think it was the way that it happened. It was like, it's like probably if I would have lost that match in the second game, it wouldn't have been so bad, right? But the thing is that you you get that chance, you get you get in yourself into the Armageddon. Your opponent blunders you a bishop, and it's already in the bag. Like it's like it's not like you, um, you know, are starting from scratch, right? Like you literally already have this uh, this uh, title wrapped up, and then you manage to like somehow like let it go. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's kind of beyond <laughs> beyond devastating, right? Right, um, and. Uh, I certainly, I couldn't feel normal, you know, for a number of days after that. Like it was the kind of thing you wake up remembering, you remember how, uh, how stupid you were, you know, that's like the first thought It's like, okay, you know, that's what I did. Right. You didn't just lose a game. Like you lost a game that like, you know, you probably, uh, you, you, you know, you, you wouldn't lose, like if you had to play like another, you know, hundred thousand games like that, but like, um, um, this is a special, it's a special kinds of punishment, right. That you inflicted on yourself. And uh, how do you, 
how do you shake it off? Well, I mean, the key is just, first of all, to keep on living, right? That's the, that's the key. It's like, you don't, don't throw yourself out the window the way you feel in the moment because, uh, because it will get better in a few days and a few days you're going to realize, I mean, you're going to realize like, okay, life goes on. Um, (laughs) It definitely goes on. Everything else is still all right in your life. Like, um, you know, and, and you, and you're going to have, you know, more tournaments as well. Um, so I think, well, the, the main thing is actually just surviving for a couple of days. That's really what it is. Like, there's no way you're going to feel good about this. Or you're going to be able to shake it off immediately. Right. The main thing is like, you know, don't damage yourself when you're in that state. Right. Which I mean, for me, okay. It's, it's a lesson I've learned, you know, long time ago, many, many times over. Right. So it's like, I know, no matter the pain you feel like it will go away. So like, I'm I, just knowing that, like I'm able to, to get through it and just do some normal things. And, you know, um, the, the next morning it's already a little better and the next morning and so on. And until eventually, until eventually the pain fa- fades. And I think, but it, it does, it does le- always kind of leave you with, you know, more motivation to, to do whatever you need to do. So that like, you don't, this doesn't happen again. Um, and yeah, I mean, hopefully I'm going to, you know, because the problem is sometimes that the motivation also fades as you get further away from that pain. Right. <laughs> right. Yes. And so the, the key is like, just like, it's not a bad thing to remember it because like, that's what keeps you doing the right thing every day to avoid it in the future. Um, so, I mean, basically where I am now, like a month after all of this, um, yeah, of course I'm completely fine. Moved on. Um, I'll tell you a funny little anecdote. Actually, yeah. during the tournament, I was contacted by by a a show, right? Um, you know, they they wanted me to uh, participate, and and basically, I wasn't really in the mood right after playing this playoff. Sure. To uh, to even call them back, really, you know, like I mean, it was like, <laughs> but you know, I forced myself to do it because I was like, you gotta go on with life. Like, you can't just you know say no to opportunities. You never know what this will bring you, right? So, right. like that was just an example of the kind of thing. Like, okay, you just do it. You know, you don't want to do it. You don't want to talk to anyone. You know, you've had like this devastating event happen, but go ahead and pick up the phone. Right. So I think that was important. Like I still did it, even though I didn't want to, you know? Right. Yeah. That's, <laughs> a, that's a great lesson. To that. That I can't tell you about, but, but I mean, you know, um, but it will become evident in, in, uh, in a bit of time. Oh, okay. I look forward to that. That's uh, some good news uh, amidst all that. So I like that. That's great. And a, an excellent lesson that you shared too, from that. So do you plan to compete next year in the U S women's or is it too early to say? Oh yeah, sure. I mean, unless something, you know, radically changes in my life, um, I am always ready to compete. Yeah. Fantastic. That's great. Yeah. And on the subject of competing, I just wanted to kind of get some of your wisdom here because uh, there was a a great quote that I saw from you uh, on this subject uh, in an article. um, And I'd just like to to discuss it a bit. You said, uh, I I, I come into every game with the belief that I can give it 100%. And that's probably not a lot less than what my opponents can bring, which is a a, a funny uh, add-on to that. But the yeah. first part of that is what really intrigues me is that you come into the 
game with the belief that you can give a hundred percent. So how did you adopt that very strong mentality? Is it, is it basically a second nature thing now from you, from your training, or is it always, you know, something that you have to bring to the forefront of your mind and, and, and remind yourself to, to do? I would say that probably at this point, it's like, that's just my mentality, right? It's just the, um, the end point of, you know, years of playing chess, years of being in, um, you know, stressful or difficult situations, um, and still getting through them. So, so yeah, um, I think it just developed kind of naturally, actually, from from that, from all of that, those accumulated years of experience. So mm-hmm. do I have to keep reminding myself of that? Probably not. I think this is probably just how it is at this point. I see. And did you feel like you had to develop that over the years? Or do you remember just like being a kid, seven, eight years old, and just having that that kind of fighting mentality all the time? You know, I think I always had like a good amount of concentration. Because when I see pictures of myself as a little kid, like I, I really, I do recognize myself in those pictures. Like I'm, I, I see that sort of focus and concentration. Like, so I think I had that um, always, but it's probably, I would say that rather than me developing it, it's something that chess developed in me, hmm. right? It's just this, this, uh, you know, how I guess water smooths out a stone, right? It's just this <laughs> gradual process, you know, where the game of chess, you know, puts you into these situations um, and, you know, it, force, it forces you to work hard, forces you to bring out the best in yourself, you know, even if you're not feeling great and you are feeling nervous or and stressed out um, and, and coping with that. And I mean, I would say in, in general, it probably, you know, does that, I think, to most people. I think to most strong players actually um, wind up with that mentality. You know, I mean, mm. I see all these top players and I'm sure they they're doing a hundred percent too. Right. So, but I guess that's why I said, it's probably not a lot less than what my opponents can bring, which, which I guess I added that on just to say that like, (laughs) we're all, we're all going to be trying here. (laughs) Right. Right. Uh, That was a great insight. So yeah, I just want to talk a bit about your, uh, your business GM chess, which Mm -hmm. for people who don't know offers classes and coaching to scholastic players. Uh, Can you tell us a little about how that got started? Yeah, so I started that with my coach and our mutual friend, Grandmaster Tomas uh, Gelashvili, like in 2015. And it started off as um, an in-person, you know, I have to kind of clarify that now that a lot of things are online, but we started doing in-person camps and classes at the Marshall Chess Club, which was quite nice, um, you know, because the Marshall was a place where I had grown up as a kid. I was very happy to work there and, um, you know, be a part of like giving kids a chance to come and spend time in this historic place and learn chess from uh, strong players. And so we did this actually for or five years, um, right up until the pandemic. And then we um, pivoted to, to online stuff, which we're still doing to, to some extent. Um, still have classes for scholastic players. And of course, all of us are also doing all our private lessons. Um, so yeah, that's how we got started. It was the three of us, Georgie, Tamaz, and I, and the Marshall Chess Club. 
That's awesome. And what was your um, hope or your, say, mission? If that, I don't know if that's too big or grand of a word, but what motivated you to want to coach and help Scholastic players? Um, yeah, I mean, that's a good question. <laughs> I think, yeah, what motivated me? Well, first of all, I've always, I, I've always enjoyed teaching. You know, I've been teaching actually since I was even like, since I began college. Um, part of helping myself pay pay my way through uh, school. You know, I was working at chess in the schools, um, going to various schools around the city. I worked at the school IS-318, um, which, you know, later became very well known for its chess program. They had a movie uh, made about them. Um, so, you know, chess teaching is something that I've just been doing actually for a really long time, always been combining with my playing to some extent, Right. And yeah, at that point in my life, I guess I was, you know, after I'd made my GM title, um, I guess I was ready to, to kind of do something that would keep me in New York more. Maybe I wasn't into like the constant traveling. And so this was a pretty natural place um, to, to head off to like um, starting your own chess coaching business, you know, because yeah, you're, it's quite, it's quite nice to bring grandmaster level instruction to all players, including beginners, right? To make sure they're starting off learning chess, like, well, in the best possible way. Um, and yeah, and it, there was like, it turned out to be possible to work with the marshal at that time. So like everything, everything worked out for that. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. One thing I find fascinating about your your teaching there is that when I looked at the site, um, it looks like, if assuming this is still current, that the classes you teach are players in the range of about five hundred to fifteen hundred, mm-hmm. you know, which is which is mostly beginner level. So, you know, for someone of your skill, that it's sort of interesting to me. So, what made you decide to teach in that range versus, say, you know, coaching the top scholastic players or something like that? Yeah. Um, so, okay, it's a little bit, you know, GM chess and like me as a personal teacher, it's a little bit different, right? Um, so our, our, you know, coaches definitely work with like all levels of players. I think we each kind of have like levels we specialize in. And for example, Georgie, um, definitely works with a lot of those top scholastic players. Um, actually his, his current student, uh, one of his current students is doing quite well. He just made his, uh, I think third, I am norm. Wow. Um, so maybe probably becoming, well, maybe not the youngest I am in the country, but I think uh, certainly probably one of the top two. I don't know. I think there's another boy, Andy Woodward, right, who uh, who also might be like getting that title and he's even younger. But anyway, yeah, I mean, our coaches work with like all levels. Um, but for our group classes, I think, yeah, we most our group classes are generally tailored to like these more beginner levels, just A, it's like a larger pool of players and B, you know, as kids like get to a higher level, they just tend to um, want to do private lessons. And, you know, in fact, they need to do private lessons more. So in general, like if you try to make like a group class for 2100s, I think that's pretty difficult unless you're like, I don't know, Vladimir (laughs) Kramnik or something. And, you know, you have like the name and the marketing to kind of like be appealing, you know, at a group level to those players, because normally, you know, what you need to do is really just work with a private teacher then. Right. So I think, yeah, this level of like why we 
kind of um, offer classes to this level is just because at that level, kids can, can definitely benefit from group classes, like a good way to get into chess. And and you can even progress even without a private teacher, right? But as you get higher in chess, like it really becomes like more of an individual thing. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So yeah, I'm just uh, curious about like uh, the future a little bit for you and what you what you see for yourself. You know, obviously, you know, you've been still competing in a lot of top events. And you're as we talked about your coaching, you're also doing commentating. So I guess if you looked ahead to over the next few years of your chess career, do you see yourself doing the same mix of activities that that I mentioned? Or do you expect a, a shift uh, in, in where you put your time? Um, well, I do see myself, um, you know, engaged in playing, I still like to play these top events. And um, I really love commentating. Um, I still see myself, you know, working with my students. Um, do I, I mean, if I had to say which of those things could possibly change, like if I had to make a guess, right? Like about, mm -hmm. because <laughs> how, where my life would go, what would I be doing uh, less of? I would probably say teaching. Okay. Um, yeah, I would, I mean, you know, again, it's not something that's like imminent, but if I just had to like, kind of look at the probabilities of how things can unfold and like, where my, more of my time could go or less, I would say maybe teaching would uh, be something I uh, cut back on in the years ahead. Uh, commentating, I don't think I would ever come cut back on that because, well, there's just no need. It's not like, it's not something I do daily, number one, right? It's more <laughs> right, of like right. a special thing. And I'm pretty much always up for it because I think there's few few ways that are as fun to spend your time. It's like, you know, the difference, like, let's say coaching and commentating, right? Like, you know, teaching, you need a lot of patience. And, you know, you got to like get past the frustration, right? When you're like, when your students, uh, you know, can't see a check for like 10 minutes, right? When you ask them <laughs> to find a check, you know, and you got to you know, um, remind them to pay attention and to work harder. And it's like, you know, it's a lot more, well, it's, it's like, it requires a lot more, right? Like you really are drawing on all these different parts of yourself to, to be like, to give as much as possible to your students. With commentating, yeah. I feel like what's just, it's just pure joy. I mean, like, what, what, like there's, you, you do what you love to do, which is look at chess. You look at the best players play, you come up with like interesting lines with your co-commentators. And so like, what, 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 what could be, what are the downsides of that? You know? <laughs> <laughs> right exactly I don't, I don't see it i that's why actually i think daniel so i think that in general you know top players they love commentary right mm, i don't i mean i mean there's a reason like you see peter lico doing it and he looks like he's enjoying himself like who wouldn't like any person <laughs> who loves chess and is like able to speak properly right and it's like not too camera shy of course they're going to love commentary right because there's no there's no pressure like you know even when you're coaching it's like if you're i don't know like, well, there's different levels of coaching, but there's the coaching where like your students are playing important tournaments and you got to, let's say, prepare them. And then there's like the stress of like, you know, how's it going to go? Right. Like you don't have any of that in commentary. So yeah. I think that, that that I would always be up for. I would pretty much be happy to do it like every day. Um, I, I imagine yeah. it's fun to just like have you know, have the camaraderie with other your fellow commentators. Right. To just have those connections with them and talk with them. Uh, oh, absolutely. It's wonderful. Like I've never worked with someone that I didn't enjoy. I, I kind of feel like you're linked by this love of chess. And of course, there's people that you can connect with more and you have like more of a rapport with. 
but sure. there's there's no one I've worked with that I did not enjoy, you know, the experience of commentary. Um, Is there someone who you had like yeah. uh, like that extra special chemistry with uh, so far that you've like someone, yeah. you know, you just really clicked with in particular your personality? You know, I, really I feel like there's actually so many people like that. Like <laughs> it's, it's like, it's, it's maybe it's not even like the exception of like who I click with. I mean, I don't know. I, I can say like, I only did like, I think one day or something with Lauren Trent, but that was fun for sure. Um, you know, always enjoy commentating with Jen. Uh, right. I mean, I think she's probably been on your podcast, right? Yeah, Jen she Jai. has. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure the viewers know her when I say Jen, um, let's see who else do I really enjoy working with? Um, you know, yeah, pretty much, pretty much everyone is what I would say. That's great. That's great. Yeah. Um, Fiona, I, I really like yeah, the ladies, the ladies, I have to say. I also really like working with Fiona style, Anthony. Yeah. Yeah. She's been on the show as well. Yeah. Um, so yeah, she's fantastic. I agree. Yeah. So yeah, I just had uh, this maybe like just change the subject, but I wanted to do one question from one of my followers because I, I asked them if they had any any questions for you and so that I'd, I'd pick out one that I liked. This is uh, back to the tournament stuff again. Uh, this may be just a, a, an easy question to answer. Um, this is from a follower of mine, Amy uh, on Twitter, and she asked if you have um, like any game day rituals during a tournament, like uh, in the morning or, you know, pregame kind of stuff, uh, like a workout reviewing lines or anything special yeah so i definitely have like a routine during tournaments and it's something i've worked out over the years which i feel works pretty well for me and first of all it relies on doing as little preparation as possible you know on the morning of the game so maybe like i will still have to review a couple of things that let's say my coach puts together for me but it's going to be like minimal Right. So I try to do as much as I can the night before um, because you really need to conserve your energy. Like I've definitely found like if I'm going to be doing all out preparation on the morning of the game, like my mind will just be fried from all these variations that you need to remember. And so that's why I try to cram that in in night. Then I go to sleep like the brain processes and clears out all this you know, debris and then you're fresh for the game. And that's really the key thing. I mean, I will eat one meal a day. I mean, one well meal a day. Yeah, one meal before the round. <laughs> Not going to be super heavy, but it's going to, you know, it's going to to be enough to get me through. And then I'll have like a nice big dinner. Um, do I work out? Yeah, definitely not before the games. Um, and there's just no time. Like I get up late. I'll do a little bit of review and then eat and then barely have time to uh you know, to get myself dressed and showered and everything uh, for the game, at least like at least when the round starts really early, like at 1 p.m., like it does at the U.S. Championship. I mean, if it's 3 p.m., which I haven't actually played for a while, like maybe it's a little bit different. Like I would say if it's 3 p.m. and if maybe if you can even nap before the game, like I would definitely do that, too. Like anything to to make your mind fresh and actually relieve it from the burden of all this preparation that you've had to do. Um, that would be the key. Yeah. Yeah. Great advice. Great advice. So I just finished on just one fun question. Is there a top player that you'd love to play, but haven't yet played? Ah, top player that I'd love to play, but haven't yet played. Well, you know, the thing is I've played Carlson, so he would be my answer, but I would certainly (laughs) love to play him again. Yeah. (laughs) When did you play him? I played him 
only one official tournament game in Norway in uh, I think 2007. Um, so it's been a while and yeah, I would certainly be happy to play Magnus again. Um, other players than, yeah, I, I have to say other than him, I, you know, I would be happy to play any top player, you know, but there's not like one. Um, I mean, I, probably if like Kramnik came back to chess, mm-hmm. you know, I would love to play like a, I mean, I've only played him in blitz. Right. Um, but I would love to play him in a, slower game right but um but overall you know i think any any game against like a top player 27 2800 like that's a special occasion right so that's why it's hard for me to single it out sure yeah that makes sense well those are good answers um so i i I just want to say thank you so much for being on the show i had a great time talking with you and (laughs) you had a lot of great stories and insights and i loved hearing all of it and i'm sure everyone listening uh will as well so uh again thank you so much for your time thank you daniel it was a pleasure thanks for listening this has been a production of my business adult chess academy And that has a website with the same name if you want to look for it. You can also find me being way too active on Twitter by searching my username, Lona underscore chess. See you next week.